This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry, Episode 33, An Atlantic Model for China. The world is seeing glimmers of hope as more COVID-19 vaccines are approved and distributed, while many other struggles remain as humankind marches forward and continues to make history. We hope that during the past few months of physical restrictions, this podcast has been an enchanted door through which your imagination has freely sailed across space and time with the excellent company of other like-minded travelers of history. Until now, we've been able to release episodes recorded at 1623 Studios prior to the beginning of the pandemic. We've exhausted that cash, but the show will go on with recordings straight from John Curtis Perry's home. So, without further ado, and with your indulgence, please enjoy this home-recorded episode and the three more that follow it. We return now to where we began with China, a new and global force in maritime affairs, both economic and naval In the 19th century, Europeans brought an oceanic model to imperial China, then on a downward dynastic cycle. The Qing dynasty limping to its close in the classic dynastic pattern of rise and decline. The Chinese themselves perceived this as the nature of things. In that 19th century of Chinese decline, European coastal settlements sprang up along the China coast, led and dominated by Britons. Only Hong Kong and Singapore, a heavily Chinese city in Southeast Asia, were actual colonies. Other places were known as treaty ports. These were enclaves, colonies in effect, if not in name, carved out by these hairy, big-nosed intruders from the Atlantic world. They were places made possible and sustained by European mastery of the seas. For security reasons, Europeans favored islands for these seaport towns, some newly created out of nothing or perhaps rising from a few fishermen's simple huts. Others already thrived as ports for regional trade. Shanghai, for example, already a significant town. The foreigners simply made these places intra-Eurasian, even intercontinental. Treaty ports like Shanghai became places where foreigners could live under their own governance and legal systems, under their extraterritorial privilege. In the 19th century, these special rights were exacted from the Chinese, who were defeated in a series of wars with Europeans, and with the Japanese, too. This principle of extraterritoriality extrality, so-called, was not new to the Chinese. It was a traditional way to deal with barbarians. Arab traders in the 8th century were treated the same way. 
But the Atlantic world injected a new element, the steam-powered iron-hulled gunboat, and exploited its superior firepower. For these intruders, threat of force always lay behind persuasion. The Arabs, long before, did not have gunboats. These seaport cities on the China coast served as cultural bridgeheads between the Atlantic world and existing local cultures. They embraced an oceanic littoral, sweeping not only East Asian but also South and Southeast Asian shores, stretching from Mumbai, Bombay in those days, to Yokohama, also briefly a treaty port. To these settlements, Europeans brought a new oceanic common culture, heavily British and heavily influenced by the British colonial experience in India. The British bequeathed an international business culture that is today global. Dominated now by Americans, its antecedents are British. Britons brought the English language, accounting, and legal systems, tennis, and, of course, the Scots contributed golf and whiskey. These ports, virtual outposts of empire, were multi-ethnic, multicultural microcosms bound together by the sea. They comprised an oceanic world that formed a commercial, cultural, and political archipelago. In these Pacific Asian treaty ports, a tiny number of foreigners lived within a sea of Chinese, but the minority governed and set the tone for everyone. To local people, these places offered the demonstration effect of modern urban life as the Atlantic world was then experiencing it. There, Chinese could enter a world of dentists and modern surgery, of tall buildings, elevators, and a steam-powered tram, the Hong Kong Peak Fernicular, the first in Asia. All these phenomena were not yet to be seen within China itself, and they could be called beachheads for modernization. A sign today in the Shanghai History Museum reads, The British arrived and Shanghai people imported modern civilization with a sea-like broad-mindedness. Indeed, the Chinese flocked to these coastal cities, hoping to build better lives for themselves retaining their global autonomy even in these colonies and settlements. Trade with foreigners remained a small part of the overall Chinese economy. The treaty ports became islands of stability in China as the world beyond the gates began to undergo violent change. In a protracted disintegration, 
the titanic Chinese revolution at mid-20th century would ultimately bring down an ancient imperial order of two millennia. But during these troubled times, the British presence maintained law and order, personified by the tall, imposing, turbaned Indian Sikh policemen directing street traffic in Shanghai, or the Chinese merchant examining his ledgers securely in his Hong Kong counting house. Both were there because of the stability the British created. The era of their privilege lasted scarcely a century. In 1943, the unequal treaties were abrogated, and during that war-torn decade, most of the foreigners would leave China. The treaty port experience can be seen as imperialistic. Atlantic intrusions on Asian space, with ports serving as funnels for the extraction of wealth. Or, perhaps, it was something more complex. R. H. Tawney, an early 20th century British economist, described this British China as a fringe stitched along the hem of an ancient garment. Tawney captures an imagery popular at the time when the Atlantic world saw China as an ancient and fraying civilization awaiting reawakening at the touch of the Atlantic. The attitude reflects a sentimental Christian missionary impulse and a desire to change China to fit Atlantic notions of proper modern society but it also blended with crass commercialism and cultural condescension. Both sides, Chinese and foreign, had to deal with a formidable language barrier. Ultimately, this would be eased by the willingness of more Chinese to learn English than English speakers to learn Chinese. The exception would be missionaries in China sent throughout the country perhaps for a lifetime, obliged to learn Chinese in order to make any converts. Tastes in food also tended to separate the cultures, but seaports provided centers for culinary encounter. A majority of Atlantic visitors disdained Chinese food. Chinese sailors carried their cuisine to Liverpool in the early 1900s, and the British scorned it there, too, at first. Early visitors to China focused on the exotic character of Chinese cuisine, some of which they found repugnant, linked to the killing and eating of animals considered pets back in Europe, sold alive in Chinese markets. Or such items as swallows' nests, bear's paw, snake, Monkey brain, all thought repulsive. Very little mention was made of ordinary, daily Chinese food. A simple, prosaic, rice or wheat, vegetable-based diet. Atlantic people approached that subject 
already prejudiced against the entire cuisine. Why was there such a lack of integration between the two food cultures? The Chinese had no motivation to take up a foreign cuisine. It was, it was too expensive even to consider. The British held negative associations with key flavorings used by the Chinese cook. They saw excessive use of oil and garlic. British cookbooks roundly denounced garlic as something bad-smelling and offensive. And the foreigner found using chopsticks to be awkward and frustrating. Sailors complained they could only look at their food. Table manners differed. A Scottish engineer described a Chinese wedding in which he noted that to be particularly polite to your neighbor, the host drew his chopsticks through his mouth to clean them before using them to serve him. Methods of cooking differed. Britons used baking and roasting. The Chinese used frying, cutting food into small pieces to maximize the surface-to-volume area, cooking lightly at high temperature to save oil and fuel. This required large cast-iron woks and delicate woven bamboo baskets for steaming. These were not part of the British batterie de cuisine. Curry rice was perhaps the first fusion food. It could be eaten with fork or chopsticks and becomes the quintessential dish of the Asian waterfront. The Japanese think of it as theirs, but sailors carried it from South Asia to East Asia. Seamen brought their pallets to the Atlantic world. Liverpool and London noodle shops served cheap dishes, at first shunned by locals as having too much MSG, and locals thought the food prepared in possibly unhygienic conditions. But after World War II, a big change occurred. Low-cost labor and only small portions of expensive meat made Chinese food cheap and it seemed good value. People began to enjoy the taste. Post-World War II changed Atlantic attitudes toward the outside world, and increasing foreign travel made Chinese food part of a vast culinary globalization, part of that third phase of oceanic revolution, I would suggest. In coastal China, the cityscape of the treaty port reflects an international maritime world. Like Romans in their time, the Victorians were great engineers. British engineering welded the empire together with its ships, cables, and docks. And as the 19th century was reaching its last decades, coming online were mechanized dredges and new materials like steel, and concrete. Harbors could be radically improved, even created. Natural harbors become less important than created seaports. British writer Jan Morris suggests, if there is one thing the imperial British knew how to do, it was to organize a port. 
British charts, pilots, harbormasters, agents, shipwrights, and ships of the Royal Navy dropping their anchors in the roadsteads were all parts of a global port network. One historian describes all this as abutments to the floating bridges of ships sailing the great ocean highway. Britain's planned the colonial cityscape and shaped the heart of the treaty ports. The city becomes a means of cultural expression, using physical forms to express the spirit of empire. In architecture, they favored the classical style, recalling the massive, stony grandeur that was Rome and the glory that was Greece by observing orders of Greek architecture, Doric, Ionic, Corinthian, with classical columns and porticos, with verandas of Indian origin, all placed within an Asian environment. The Bund, a coastal embankment, sharply defined the water's edge, with public buildings dominating the skyline including courthouses, government offices, banks, schools, clock towers, customs houses, and the inevitable Anglican Cathedral with its soaring Gothic spaces, its walls and floors embedded with memorial tablets and tombs celebrating the lives of those who had come from far away. Grand hotels offered great public rooms in Singapore's Raffles, Rangoon's Strand, or Hong Kong's Peninsula. Parks with clipped green lawns and regimented flower beds provided a bit of England transplanted. And the people. British society in British China was middle class, bourgeois, preoccupied with business. Most were not aristocrats. Unlike India, aside from the high officials, its people were not uniformed, plumed, or bemedaled. They were not sword-wielding empire builders. Yet, photos show the similarly overdressed and overfed characteristic of prosperous Atlantic people globally at the time. The same snobbery in class consciousness, the same tastes, passions for sport, lawn tennis and golf, hunting and shooting, the cricket pitch and the race course, playing bridge and acting in amateur dramatics, reflecting the need to make one's own entertainment. But in spite of all temptations to belong to other nations, he remains an Englishman. He remains a The Atlantic expatriates were for the most part sojourners and transients, 
trying to live a life resembling what they had known at home. Among the successful were the Jardines. Thomas Jardine, a pioneer Hong Kong entrepreneur, was as tough as any army commander fighting on the Afghan frontier. His kinsman, William Jardine, the Chinese called Iron-Headed Old Rat, he was a leading figure in the opium traffic, and for a century, opium traffic remained a staple Jardine trade, despite the fact that no one could convincingly argue its virtues. In daily expat life along the China coast, a transient and vulnerable society craved the rituals of order and command, expressed in a military addiction to ceremony, with marching bands, parades, salutes, and even dressing formally for dinner. These were means of giving face, bolstering prestige. Rickshaw culture perhaps sums it up. High comfort sustained by low wages. The American writer Emily Hahn, who spent years in China, puts it, The famous lure of the tropics is the houseboy. Even the modestly paid clerk would keep a servant. The treaty port brought wealth for some. The China coast offered opportunity both for foreigners and Chinese. And yet, for the less successful immigrants, the acronym FILTH was applied. F-I-L-T-H. Failed in London, tried Hong Kong. For many, the experience was unhappy, especially for the women, bored, often lonely, unemployed, wives who had to manufacture a life. Vulnerability to disease for everyone meant a high death rate. Alcohol disabled many. The surgeon diplomat Sir Rutherford Alcock observed that many go home sick every year with spleens much larger than their fortunes and not a few remain to have their bones laid in six feet of Chinese earth. The expat community reflected the overall imperial experience, both bad and good. Exploitative, yes, and immoral, too. Business could be as ruthless as war. Along the waterfront, a center of commerce, traditionally a rough neighborhood, lawlessness was common. Rowdy sailors after the confines of ship on long voyages headed for the brothels and the bars. As Kipling puts it, ship me somewheres east of Suez where the best is like the worst, where there ain't no Ten Commandments and a man can raise a thirst. And yet, on the positive side, the British brought the benefits of membership in a global English-speaking community with a political stability conducive to doing business successfully. Life in British China was far more orderly than in Chinese China, and business craves order 
as we know. The Atlantic world thought of itself as model for everything good, cleanliness, tidiness, modernity, and progress. Although the British elite looked down upon merchants, they appreciated trade as a vehicle for civilization, which they associated with their own heritage. But the Chinese did not share that image, and commerce was never part of the orthodoxy of imperial Chinese leadership. The impact of the foreign presence was probably more emotional and psychological than economic. And although the 20th century introduced democracy and later Marxism to China, the overall framework remained Chinese. Much of the nation was relatively untouched by the outside world until the latter part of the last century. Yet, for the Chinese, the treaty port century became a humiliating world of foreign dominance. It fired deep-seated and ultimately explosive resentments, which color Chinese sentiments about the past and with which we must recognize and deal with today. For China, the first half of the 20th century, the peak of the Atlantic era in global history, was a time of continuing chaos as the imperial order collapsed in 1911 and nothing rose to take its place. War, civil and international, flood, famine, and ultimately revolution, erupting from massive rural discontent, would culminate in the 1949 communist triumph and flight to Taiwan. What happened to maritime China as the revolution unfolded and transformed the nation? What was China like in 1949 and in its first revolutionary years? Join us next for episode 34 to find out. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Recording by Charlotte Allard in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Production and distribution by Albert Bouichadé-Ferré. Goodbye until next time.